Watershed Investigations, Tales from the Frontline of the Water Crisis. I'm Rachel Salvage and I'm here, as usual, with Liana Hazia. And in this episode, we're diving into the big water stories of the last couple of weeks. Tell us what's happened in a nutshell, Liana. Okay, so the government's attempt to rip up river protection laws was thrown out. The environmental watchdog said that the government and regulators could be breaking the law on allowing so much sewage dumping. And on top of all this, the Prime Minister is considering weakening key green commitments to reach net zero. To get a grip on all of these issues, we're talking to Nathan Jubb, who is a Gilly Guide, who spends about 258 days a year on the River Wye. And then we're going to hear from Dr Doug Parr, Greenpeace's chief scientist, about what needs to be done. Welcome to the podcast, Nathan Jubb. Nathan is a fly fishing guide on the River Wye, and the Wye is, is well known to be suffering from nutrient pollution. It's reported to be largely a result of the large number of chicken and other farms along the river's course. And in June this year, Natural England downgraded the river's status from recovering to declining. Yeah, we wanted to hear about it from someone who spends their days alongside the river. So, Nathan, can you tell us how long you've been a guide on the river? and about those changes that you've seen over time? I've been fishing on the Wye for 45 years. First off, the Wye was a very crystal clear river, loads of water crows for Eurunculus. But since 2016, we have annually got algae blooms on the river. Now, prior to 2016, we had a few blooms. But if you look back and you see in the lug catchment and other catchment areas, the few chicken sheds that started sprouting up to what we have now. So we have so many chicken sheds. I think it's nearly a thousand of these units. So is it mainly after heavy rain and the the rain kind of washes all this chicken poop into the river? What you'll find is before a big rain event, the farmers will go out and spread the silage and we get the rain and it pours into the river. But the ground's so saturated, we could probably go another 10 years without anything doing anything and we will still get, because they keep punishing the land. If you've got high phosphate levels in the soil, you don't need to add any more at the end of the year. They dump tons of the stuff on there, whether it's potatoes, corn, maize, goes on. It's 16 point something degrees this year in May. We started getting algae blooms. It will not stop till the water temperatures drop. The climate's changing, there's no doubt, since I was a lad. And we're getting hotter weather events. And, and the more that goes into this system, the worse they get. I mean, the worrying part for me as well is drinking water. And a lot is drawn off the Y. Well, I actually live in Ebley, which is quite a long way in Stroud, away from the river. And I actually get Y-treated water through our taps. And like I say to people, if, if I had a pile of poo in one hand and a pile of weed in the other and a lot of chicken stuff, and I put it all in a jar, mixed it up, put it through a water purification system, would you drink it in front of me? The answer is no, you wouldn't. You know, but how much chemicals has been added again to this water to get rid of this problem? Because the worse it gets, the more expensive it is to treat and the more chemicals they've got to use to treat it. But it, it affects me in, in a lot of ways because when we get the algae blooms, I can't work. It puts the salmon off. It deoxygenates the water. It's not just me that suffers. It's, you know, the wildlife. And when you've got the blooms, it destroys the water crow's foot. You're destroying a little ecosystem for all your little fish. You know, we would hold more salmon on the beach if we had more cover for the fish when it's sunny. You know, I've seen a massive change in the river. And it's not just the Y, it's all the other rivers are having these problems. But 
I definitely think the chicken sheds has caused the problems we've got now, without a doubt. Have you seen any fish kills as a result of like, really extreme events along the river? No, I see dead salmon. You always get a small amount because of the oxygen starvation and everything else. And sometimes they get caught and they don't get put back in properly. You get them die. But I can honestly hand on my heart say I've not seen major fish kills caused by the algae. But I will say this. When the algae is very, very bad, we can't see in the river anyway. So I can't, in one way, honestly answer that question. But if you put a plastic bag over your head for too much, you're going to be dead. I do see fish gasping for air sometimes. But with the white, when we get these algae booms, they're horrendous. You can't see the bottom of the riverbed. You can't see your hand six inches under the water. You don't see the salmon jumping. And if you do, they're generally stressed. It is down to the amount of crap that's going in the river. Is it possible to see changes in invertebrates? Our riverbed has gone from looking a pristine riverbed to it, it's all brown sludge. Don't see the massive shoals of fry because there's no cover for them. The Y used to look fantastic and it doesn't look so much now. It looks a brown river because the amount of sludge on the bottom. If you go above the Ithon and the Earthon, which is a lot of the intensive chicken farming, the farther you get up, the cleaner the riverbeds get. And it's going to be because it's below the pollution line. The cops of the thing is that it would suit the environment agency and National Rivers Wales to have no fish in the river, to have no salmon in the river, because it wouldn't be a problem for them. You wouldn't <laughs> have people moaning, you know, but swimmers are getting in the river now and they're becoming ill. But the government and the EA and the NRW are doing nothing. But the biggest one for me is the chicken sheds in Owens Athlete, and I've always said it. that is the one to spot to stop. Do you want to close them down? I mean, chicken is very popular. We all eat it, unless you're vegetarian. We all eat it, and you're quite right. I mean, if you have a look how much Kentucky fried chicken, we all love that. Everybody buys it. What I'm trying to say is we've always lived with the farm, and we've always lived with this water situation with the soup. But this chicken business now has got out of hand, you know, and they're still granted permission for some of these big sheds. If they dealt with that manure in some way, then that would be half of our problem. And I'm quite convinced it would cut down on quite a lot of it. If something happens to a farm, they get compensated. I don't. You know, have I not got a right to make a living? I don't exploit the fish. I don't kill the fish. If we're not on the river and we're not the eyes and ears and we're not the ones that pickle the litter and we stop the poaching and everything else, what is going to happen? Everything is just going to collapse. Nathan Jubb, thank you very much for sharing your story. We're delighted to have with us today Greenpeace's Chief Scientist and Policy Director, Dr. Doug Parr. Welcome to the Watershed Investigations podcast, Doug. Uh, Hi, glad to be here. We've just been hearing from Nathan, a fly fishing guide whose livelihood is suffering because of nutrient pollution in the river from sewage and chicken farms. We wanted to talk to you about that and the government's attempt to get rid of rules to protect rivers from increased sewage pollution, the so-called nutrient neutrality rules. The government had planned to get rid of them via an amendment to the levelling up bill, but it was defeated in the House of Lords. So we'd like to get your thoughts on that and then move on to the broader subject of whether the government is serious about protecting our waters and the environment more broadly. So could you describe to us what those rules were there for and what you made of the moves to scrap them? Sure. So the nutrient neutrality rules 
were about trying to make sure that the problems that we have with our waterways were not going to be made worse by new housing developments. Any additional nitrogen and phosphorus that would enter Britain's waterways would have to be balanced by removing or finding an equivalent amount that would not enter into the, uh, the waterways elsewhere because new developments create more sewage. And that would impose a load on the on the rivers. And the idea was that the, they would find other ways of avoiding that burden on our waterways. So that was the idea of nutrient neutrality. But house builders felt that this was an undue burden on them. And so they pushed back against it and the government caved in. The way the government justified this was to say, well, instead of that, we're going to put more public money into schemes that change land use so we don't have so much fertiliser pollution. Right, so- We'd have to pay, the public would have to pay, not the developer. What that says to me is there is no ideological underpinning to any of this. It's taken the burden off industry and increased public borrowing and public taxation in order to pay for it. Well, the number one reason for nutrients in rivers are from farms and not from housing. So the government was saying, well, it's normally the house, house developers issue number one. I mean, do you have any sympathy with that? It wouldn't have been wholly unreasonable to say we're going to take this load off house builders, but we're going to have this big plan that they will have to contribute to, which will manage the watershed in a coherent way to reduce pollution. You could do that, and that wouldn't have been unreasonable. It would have actually been quite sensible, but they didn't do that at all. They just took the load off the house builders and said, here's a pot of money. We don't really know how well it's going to work, but we'll just avoid imposing these obligations on our our mates in the house building industry. Obviously, they didn't say the bit about the mates in the house building industry. That was me editorialising. <laughs> That's how it felt. But those moves failed. The House of Lords kind of threw that out. Do you think they're going to try to introduce another bill by another way? Or how do you think they're going to get around it? I, I don't think we're getting any whispers at the moment about what they're going to do. Or if, I would not be surprised if in the King's speech, I think on the 7th of November now, there was some bill that would allow something like the abolition of nutrient neutrality to come again uh, it will obviously face challenges in the lords and they will have to think about that and it obviously plays quite badly with the public yeah the, the british public really did get quite exercised about this so there's a lot of movements to protect our rivers and wildlife Can you just talk a little bit about what are the impacts of nutrient pollution? Can you quantify fish population declines or fish kills? And what about other species? Can you paint that picture for us? Well, there's something called sewage fungus, which... That sounds gross. What is it? (laughs) It's a a fungus that grows on the riverbed, but it is distinctively something that appears rather a lot when there is a lot of sewage pollution because of the sewage inflows into Lake Windermere, blue-green algae, which is toxic to swimmers uh, and dogs who've been swimming in there. They've had health issues arising from that. There have been fish kills. They tend to accompany these kind of acute episodes of sewage spills. So these rules, they're safe for now. It's victory. And it was rightly celebrated by lots of environmental campaigners. But, I mean, we're really just back to the status quo, aren't we? Which isn't a great situation because rivers weren't that healthy anyway. I mean, there's this big effort to keep these rules, but many said that these rules were very weak in terms of not doing that much to prevent rivers from getting highly polluted, from 
farm runoff and sewage. I mean, are there any kind of top things that need to happen now? Like, do you have a wish list? Well, you're absolutely right in the sense that the only argument that the house builders had that was reasonable for my money was that, you know, we're actually quite a small part of the problem. And they were quite a small part of the problem because, as we know, there are sewage spills going there, what, how many thousand there were every year that we see. There is a serious problem with agricultural runoff, and that is causing the majority of the problem. Nutrient neutrality would have made no difference to the Y, for example, which is suffering because of intensive agriculture. This is, tends to be more chronic. It's not so sudden as a, as a sewage episode. The sewage situation is quite serious, and that is something that is going to be very difficult to fix in the short term. But I'd like to look at another battleground that's opened up recently, because what might be underpinning you know, all the issues that you're talking about is the fact that perhaps our regulators aren't doing a good enough job. Just last year, I think it was, the NGO Wildfish brought a complaint to the Office for Environmental Protection, which was set up to replace some of the oversight that the European Commission used to provide. That complaint was addressed by the OEP. They looked into it and they, they decided, actually, they think that what Wildfish was alleging, that the regulation isn't taking place properly around uh, sewage pollution, might be true. And they've looked into it and said there are possible failures by DEFRA, by Ofwa and by the Environment Agency, that they may not be complying with environmental law on this issue. So I was wondering, could you just take us through what the OEP says they're failing to do and whether you agree with that? They haven't said that they're definitely failing, but they're saying they might be, and they've given all of those organisations a couple of months to respond, I think. There wasn't enough standard setting by Ofwat to say, you have got to spend some money on these sewage works, because if you don't spend money on these sewage works, there will be a pollution problem. And sitting on top of that, DEFRA, or, well, it's been a bit of sleep at the wheel, really. It hasn't overseen properly the relationship between those two to make sure that the environmental standards were properly met. All of those agencies or in government departments weren't really doing their jobs in terms of looking after the well-being of, of our watercourse ecology. Is it because it, they're just not working together in a, in a joined-up way, or is it a concerted effort to reduce regulation? I mean, the Environment Agency's had its budget slashed by a half over the last 12 years or something like that, in that, in that ballpark anyway. I am more inclined to think cock-up rather than conspiracy, at least <laughs> at the beginning. And I think the recent denuding of the Environment Agency really hasn't helped. You know, there was a failure of political leadership to examine the issue, and there was certainly a failure of what to even be willing to think about it when its priority was always to keep bills low and not to think that it's got a wider remit of trying to look after the natural and, and water environment. So what do you think might be the, the outcome? Because the OEP, it's supposed to replace the um, European Commission, but the European Commission could fine uh, the government, it could force it to change its policies, but the OEP can't do anything like that. How effective can it be? How far can it go? The role of the OEP at the moment is still being developed, and it depends on the robustness of the leadership in the OEP. If people can rally behind the OEP, then the government will find its ability to rein in the challenge that they get from them quite limited. Doug, we'd love to hear more about you as well, because you've been at Greenpeace for more than two decades, and before that you were with Friends of the Earth. So you must have seen a lot. I was just wondering if you had a particularly sort of exciting moment in your career or an exciting 
success or, or, or direct action? And then you know, do you think it would work now or where, where do you think it should go now? I was part of the team that stood up in Liz Truss's Conservative Conference speech last year and protested about you know, the fact that she was planning to do all sorts of things on fracking and rollback of regulation. There was a lot of attention. There was a lot of interest. So again, I was part of the team that protested uh, some of the field trials of genetically modified crops in the late 90s, which got a massive reaction, far, far bigger than we kind of expected, just because it touched a raw nerve. Sometimes it's really difficult to say which ones really strike a chord and which ones don't. Other things that somehow don't quite make it when they should. But there is that issue that even um, the Prime Minister has you know, been rolling back on some of his environmental commitments, mm. because he sees it as a vote loser. People are, you know, especially low-income people are really concerned that green policies are going to hurt their pockets, and it, a lot of people are it, struggling. Yeah, people are struggling. Of course they're struggling. We're in, a, we're in a cost of living crisis, although we're actually in a cost of fossil fuels crisis. That's what the real problem is. That's what driving up energy bills, it's feeding through to food bills and climate change has already started to have an impact on food inflation as well. So, you know, these crises are interlinked. So that's point one. The second point I would make is that citizens' advice are quite clear about this. And they say rolling back on net zero policies is going to make life more expensive and it's going to make us poorer and it's going to be particularly hard for those people who are the poorest. If they were smart politicians, if they were leaning into the challenges of the 21st century, they would be looking at clever ways of making this stuff accessible to people and making the changes accessible to people, even those on the poorest, on the lowest income. Because a lot of the changes actually make the running costs of society cheaper. Renewables are expensive up front, they're cheaper overall. Electric cars, expensive up front, cheaper overall. Heat pumps, certainly when you put in the costs of carbon, expensive up front, cheaper overall, certainly compared to other low carbon forms of heating. And instead, what we're seeing from this government is they're running away. That's a historic error, and it's a morally culpable error in terms of the face of what we're seeing at the moment, which is over the summer, half of the Northern Hemisphere seemed to be on fire. And the idea that this is not going to hit the UK at some point, where we have a massive drought or a massive heat wave, or a massive storm of the sort that has afflicted actually quite a number of places like Libya, where our infrastructure simply cannot cope. It'll happen. It may not happen this year. It may not happen next year, but it will. And sooner or later, the climate crisis is going to come and hit us. And when it hits us, it's going to be those people who were always already on the edge, who couldn't afford insurance and you know whose personal possessions are washed away. And that's the end of all their tangible assets. And so that's why I don't think there are almost any words that are harsh enough to describe the cowardice with which this government is choosing to approach its climate obligations. And is it just last-ditch, desperate attempt to grab a few uh, voters, um, you know, appeal to their pockets last minute in the run-up to a general election? Or, or is there something more insidious behind it? I mean, we know there's lobbying going on, but what, what, what's the fundamental reason that they're showing this cowardice? It's more likely to lose them the election than win them the election. You could probably make an argument that it'll make the loss less bad. So it's a core vote strategy for getting out, making sure you get out your 30% of, of people who are sympathetic to those arguments. But I think what we're seeing is that this is splitting the Tory party wide open. So it's not even a, a sort of coherent or clever way of doing party management. Landlords will benefit. The gas industry will benefit. 
but even the car industry isn't happy and the energy efficiency industry and the building industry are very upset. The winners in terms of the industrial winners are extremely limited. Thank you so much for joining us, Doug. That's a pleasure. Well, since we recorded the episode, the Prime Minister has confirmed he's going to push back the sale of new petrol and diesel cars from 2030 to 2035. So, I don't know, what do you make of that, Liana? It's caused an uproar here, hasn't it? Accusations of bad leadership and the government said they're still going to meet these 2050 emission-cutting targets. But how are they going to do that if they're kicking the can down the road to meet the first set of targets? Yeah, I think it was really interesting that Doug went so far as to, you know, to sort of call them out and say, you know, the behaviour was cowardice. I mean, those are pretty strong terms. He also said it was a historic failure and that really hit home for me. It really puts it in, it really puts it in that perspective that we're in an existential crisis. It really makes me wonder about, you know, the rest of the, the goals and pledges. I mean, the first 25-year environment plan that was published in 2018 was full of, you know, great goals and things, but many of them are missed. And then the targets are pushed back before there's even an attempt to, to meet them. So I think we need to keep a, a real BDI on this going forward. And just from a kind of a global perspective, you know, the UK started industrialization. So I think the expectation is that there should be greater leadership from the UK and we're really failing to do that. Yeah, we started so well with the Climate Change Act, but it's been pretty much downhill since there or potentially but um you know there is more to come so maybe maybe this government will pull it out of the bag well it's all to be it's all to play for certainly yeah and time and time will tell that's all from us at the watershed investigations and we're going to be back in a fortnight and we're going to be discussing forever chemicals <laughs> <laughs>